All right. Good morning to you. You're looking good. Good to see you again this week. It's not always that I get a chance to come back to the same place twice, so uh, I appreciate it. And usually when I do, uh, the attendance is lighter the second week. But, uh, but anyway, great, uh, great to be with everybody. And Lisa, thank you so much. Um, don't, don't see, but thank you so much for your testimony. That was, uh, that was powerful. Uh, we've all probably been um, in, a, in a situation or maybe some conversation when, when somebody does something or says something, and it's pretty clear uh, they don't have a clue. Like, what, what's actually going on? They just, they've just totally missed the point. They don't, they don't get it. Um, and uh, let's see if we can put this up on the screen here real quick. I forgot that uh, there's a funny thing that happens with your media here, that no matter what I put up, it shows the Irish coast. And so uh, <laughs> I, I, I was going to try to bluff and say that was the Sea of Galilee, but uh, I thought, you know, some of you have probably been to the Holy Land, so that wasn't going to fly. So let's, uh, let's see if we got it there. Yeah, yeah, uh, people who missed the point. Uh, like, I got a couple of examples here. Uh, so so you, you know what I'm talking about. You see these things uh, on the Internet where, where they go, okay, you don't quite get it. Or maybe this guy uh, who can't figure out how to get his truck in deep enough to launch the boat. Uh, or, uh, or maybe uh, the, the, the baker. I love this one. The baker who um, asked the customer, you know, what, what, what would you like on your cake? And the customer says, I want sprinkles. And the baker says, we can do that. And, uh, and, and, and you know, uh, just uh, they don't get it. Or this one actually is one of my favorites because I actually discovered it myself. Uh, I teach in the doctorate program at Gordon-Conwell Seminary in Boston. And one, one day I had to go up to the uh, IT office to get, uh, so I could get, a, 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 you know, connected to the network. And I went in there, and no, no joke, this is not a joke, they actually have this sign posted uh, on the wall there in the service area, um, it says uh, GCTS IT service desk. Be smart. S, raise your hand for help. <laughs> M, stay on proper websites. A, handle electronics carefully. R, turn off equipment. Clean area. T, log out of your... And I was just thinking, you know, I don't, I don't think you guys fully uh, <laughs> grasp the acrostic concept. Uh, but they just didn't, they just didn't uh, get it. I think one of the very real dangers uh, of a place like Uniontown, um, which I've come to only just experience very, very small window, but you see it. The fellowship is sweet. Uh, the, the worship is awesome. The place is beautiful. Uh, folks are congenial, fairly, fairly well behaved. Um, the, the, the problem is, I think, the hazard is that in a place like that, um, it's easy for us to come. Uh, Sunday after Sunday, week after week, uh, have a wonderful experience and, and still somehow uh, m- miss the point of, of the whole thing. Last week, um, you know, we focused on essentially one verse in Luke chapter 9 in which Jesus offers us what is probably his most succinct uh, and, and thorough explanation of, of what it means to be a disciple. How does he define that relationship? This morning, we're going to continue our study in Luke chapter 9 uh, because Luke follows up that initial statement about discipleship with no less than six short case studies in which people seem to uh, completely or mostly miss the point of that discipleship uh, relationship. They have an encounter with Jesus himself, God in the flesh. They, they have a chance to, to walk with him, and, and, and yet... Um, 
invited to follow him, to, to share in his life and his mission, they somehow totally miss the point. Um, let me just take a quick inventory with you, and I'm just going to warn you in advance, I'm going to go through these uh, very, very fast. You're going to have to, uh, if you're interested, go back and read uh, the latter half of Luke chapter 9 if you want to do a little further study. But, but you'll see that in each case, uh, somebody falls short because they don't really get the point of discipleship. In Luke chapter 9, verses 37 to 43, uh, the problem is a lack of faith. In uh, verses 44 to 55, the problem is fear. In 46 to 48, the problem is, is pride. In 49 to 50, they miss the point because of a contentious spirit. 51 to 56, unholy anger. And in 57 to 62, uh, the problem is misplaced priorities. We're given three case studies or three different situations back to back in which uh, people uh, want to say, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me do this. They didn't, they didn't understand that that uh, genuine discipleship is magnificent, yes, but it begins, it's wrapped up, it's protected with some very authentic and genuine no's. And, uh, and, and just to be honest with you, I had, I had initially planned uh, to preach this morning on all six of those case studies, but uh, due to inflation and supply chain issues, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to focus on, on one of them. And, uh, and what we're going to see this morning... Uh, is, is a case study in which two disciples miss the point of discipleship, frankly, well, frankly, because they're, they're just plain hotheads. They're just plain hotheads. Uh, Miles uh, walked with us through this passage, but let's just uh, read it again, beginning in verse 51. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. Um, we do see it. All of us do, don't we? Uh, pretty much on an everyday basis. Uh, people who who for one reason or another just seem to, to miss the point. You know, maybe it's, the, maybe it's the, 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 I saw this this past week, somebody who gets out of the car at the drive-thru ATM. Uh, you know, that, that, uh, no, no, you actually stay in your car. That's the beauty of this. Or uh, people who stop off at uh, Dairy Queen on the way home from the gym. Or, or, or maybe, uh, maybe somebody who, who actually uses their highlighter to highlight every single verse on the page. Just, do, we have any, do we have any promiscuous highlighters in the room uh, today? Yes, yes, okay. That's right, because then you can tell the words that aren't highlighted, you know, they're really important. Uh, or, or, or what about a few weeks ago when um, the executives who run the uh, Dollar, General, uh, Dollar Tree stores uh, raised all their prices to $1.25? Uh, or uh, one of my favorites, people who add uh, bacon to their veggie burger. Uh, it, it's it, it, but, um, Actually, my favorite, it, it, I live with a, a woman who does this, people who tidy up the house before the cleaners arrive uh, so it won't be too dirty. Uh, and these are the same people, by the way, who wash the dishes before they put them in the dishwasher. Uh, they don't get it. In this particular case study this morning in Luke chapter 9, this particular case study in missing the point, um, 
Luke begins in verse 51 telling us that Jesus is on a journey to Jerusalem. And, and before we go too deeply into the text, uh, let me just say, if you, if you sort of, you know, read right through Luke chapter 9, it might seem weird that we would even pause to focus on, on this particular passage because it sort of feels like the incident we're going to look at is just sort of, you know, one of those things that happens on the way to something way more important. But one of the, one of the observations you make over time about the Christian life is that it's precisely these little incidents. It's precisely these little incidents that happen on the way to everyday life, on the everyday journey, that prove to be often the test of authentic discipleship. It's like we talked about last week, that sometimes we're more willing to, to, to die for Jesus than we are to live for Jesus. The in the ordinary moments and relationships of, of our everyday experience. I think one of the big lessons that comes through in this text is that quite often uh, Jesus surprises us in those moments with these opportunities to live out, to flesh out genuine discipleship. But in this case, it's significant. It's significant that uh, Luke tells us twice in three verses that Jesus has set his face to go towards Jerusalem. He set his face to go toward Jerusalem. That, that's sort of uh, Luke's way of, of emphasizing that Jesus has a very clear, rock-solid mission. In fact, it's pretty likely that when Luke wrote these words, he had in mind a passage uh, from the Old Testament pointing to the Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7, uh, we read, But the Lord God helps me, Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is, dear, is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Luke wants us to understand that Jesus had set his face like a flint uh, to go toward Jerusalem. He, he knew this journey was was very likely going to end in his death, but he also understood in some sense that he was born for precisely this journey. But if you look at the text, uh, it's interesting. No sooner does Jesus begin his journey to Jerusalem than, in fact, we see him facing both disgrace and shame. Look at verse 53, Luke chapter 9. The people did not receive him. The people in this little Samaritan village uh, did not receive him because his face was set toward uh, Jerusalem. Uh, if you've ever been to, um, if you've ever been to a, how many of you ever been to a Liam Neeson movie? Let's just see a show of hands. Anybody ever? Yeah, okay, they're rated R. But uh, if you've ever been to one, uh, you, 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 you know, we'll just, we'll be praying. But, but if you've ever been to a Leeson, Liam Neeson movie, um, you know that um, pretty much uh, they follow a pattern, uh, don't they? Like in the first part of the film, you see him as kind of this ordinary guy, just an average dad, husband, businessman, just a guy who wants to live his life and, and experience love. For example, in the movie Taken, some of you saw that, he starts out as a dad who, who's trying to reconnect with his daughter. In Taken 2, uh, he's a father and a husband surprised on a business trip by his 
uh, daughter and his estranged wife. Uh, taken three, uh, he's an ex-husband trying to reconnect with his wife, who was formerly estranged. And then in the unknown, he's a mild-mannered uh, botanist who uh, actually wakes up after being in a coma for four days to find out that somebody's trying to steal his wife. Uh, and in The Honest Thief, he's a widower, uh, kind of a gentleman crook who decides to turn himself uh, in and go straight because he has met the woman of his dreams. But in pretty much every movie, that's sort of the story. He sort of starts out as this you know, mild-mannered, totally in-control, wannabe family guy. But then there's a turn in the story. Usually, uh, a family member is kidnapped. Uh, but but uh, there, there's something. Maybe it's a government plot. Uh, somebody crosses Liam Neeson's character, and that's when we watch him employ his peculiar set of skills to blow up, stab, shoot, and strangle his way back to his life of caring and nurture. And it's funny because in some ways, you actually see a similar trajectory in Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 55. Let's just set the stage by reminding ourselves that typically Jews and Samaritans had almost nothing to do with each other. They pretty much hated, they despised each other. But remember, Luke told us that Jesus had set his face toward Jerusalem and the straight line journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, took the disciples smack through Samaria. So um, in, a, in a gesture of, of kind of goodwill, uh, Jesus sends James and John, his brother, on a courtesy call uh, just to make arrangements with people in this one little uh, Samaritan town to kind of you know, gain their permission to stay overnight. And at this point, from what we can tell uh, in the text, James and John are, are polite as far as we know, they're, they're, they're cool. But the problem is, uh, the people of the village say, no. no, 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 no way. You just want to use us as a stopover. You don't respect us. You're not welcome here. And that's when things get ugly. Um, if you've read much in the Gospels, you probably already know this, that James and John uh, could be a little ill-tempered. Uh, we know, for example, in... Um, Earlier in this very same chapter, uh, verse 49, uh, that it's John who shouts down a guy who is casting out demons in Jesus' name because he didn't consider that guy to be one of the official uh, disciples. And, and Mark actually tells us in his gospel, Mark chapter 3, verse 17, that James and John were such blowhards that uh, Jesus literally nicknamed them the sons of thunder, the sons of thunder. And apparently this, uh, this Samaritan snub uh, made James and John angry enough that they wanted to use their peculiar set of skills to bring down a storm on this little Samaritan village. Go back to the text, verse 54. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and, and, and consume them. And it's kind of stunning when you first read it, uh, you know, how matter-of-fact they are about this. Don't you th I mean, just, Lord, would it, would, it, would it be good for us just to carpet bomb this place? Uh, you know, uh, you know uh, but, but, then, but then, just when they're ready to go all Liam Neeson on the people in the village, Luke says in verse 55, Jesus turned 
and rebuked him. He rebuked them. And, and we need to understand uh, that the word here for rebuke uh, in the Greek is a very, very intense word. In fact, this is interesting. This is a word typically used only, only for the rebuke or exorcism of a demon. And I probably don't need to tell you that, that whenever Jesus rebuked you as if you were a demon, the other disciples understood that was a bad sign. Uh, we don't know exactly what Jesus said in his rebuke. Uh, Luke doesn't really give us much detail. We don't know if that's because uh, Jesus maybe pulled James and John aside. He didn't want to humiliate them in front of everybody. Or, or maybe Luke does know what he said, um, but he doesn't want to kind of, uh, you know, throw James and John under the bus. Uh, there are some uh, texts that actually suggest he, what he might have said, but the very best trans translations, the very best manuscripts, simply tell us that Jesus turned and rebuked them. He turned and rebuked them. So we don't know exactly what Jesus said. What we do know is this, verse 55, that when they did this, when they did this, Jesus rebuked them, and the disciples went on to the next village. He went on to the next village. Now, it's interesting. You, you, you perhaps have read this before in Luke 9. When, when Jesus commissioned the disciples, uh, you may remember that he, he said to them, in essence, earlier in this very chapter, Luke chapter 9, uh, look, uh, you know, you should expect that there are going to be villages where people will reject your message. That, that, that's going to happen. And, and when that happens, don't panic. Uh, don't freak out. Uh, in fact, he said in verse 5 of this very same chapter, Luke chapter 9, whenever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And this was a fairly common uh, custom, frankly, of the Pharisees. Uh, when they crossed uh, the territory from Samaritan territory into Jewish territory, it, it was kind of a way of symbolizing their disgust, their, their, their judgment. They would, they would just shake the dust off their feet on, on the way out of town. And Jesus says to his disciples, look, you're going to face some opposition. You know, get used to it. You're being sent out as sheep in the midst of wolves. That suggests it's not going to be completely pleasant. But when that happens, shake the dust off your feet and move on. But that kind of response did not sit well with the sons of thunder. Their response to rejection was to strike back. They wanted to unleash a little, a little shock and awe. They wanted, to, they wanted to protect God's reputation. You know, they, they needed to teach these pagan Samaritans a thing or two about what happens when you cross a gracious, merciful, loving God. But Jesus rebuked them. Jesus rebuked, and the question is why? I mean, what's the, I mean, why does Jesus offer such an intensely stern rebuke? I mean, aren't they just being good disciples? And, uh, you know, aren't they just boldly living out faithful discipleship? Aren't they just taking a, a, a stand? But if you look more closely at the text, you begin to realize that what we're seeing here is a couple of disciples who seem to miss the point, largely because they're making two very, very common mistakes, 
Two common mistakes. And they're pretty much, frankly, the same basic mistakes you see anytime any of us falls short of authentic discipleship. Number one, uh, James and John hadn't fully come to terms with who Jesus was. That's mistake number one. They hadn't fully come to terms with who Jesus was. Mistake number two, James and John hadn't fully come to terms with who they were. Let's begin with that first mistake. We said that James and John, mistake number one, hadn't fully come to terms with who Jesus was. You may remember that earlier in this chapter, we read this verse last week, in verse 18 of Luke chapter 9, Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And we talked about this after a couple of misfires, uh, wrong answers. Peter uh, actually speaks up and says, well, you're the Christ of God. You are the Christ of God. In other words, you're the Messiah. And, and of course, we know from Matthew's account uh, of this conversation that Jesus says, you're, you're absolutely right, Peter. This was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father who is in heaven. And, and you may have noticed this last week, but we're too polite to raise your hand and ask uh, that when, when we study this passage, that no sooner does Jesus confirm his identity as the Messiah, then he turns right around in the very next verse and says this, don't tell anybody. Just, that's our secret. He strictly, strictly charged them and commanded them, not suggest, commanded them to tell this to no one. Which seems kind of odd, I think, right? In light of the fact that the opening verses of Luke 9 begin with Jesus commissioning the disciples to go out and proclaim the kingdom. In fact, we know from verse 10 of Luke chapter 9 that they had already gone out and begun to spread the news of the coming of the kingdom. So, so, so why does Jesus uh, commission the disciples to proclaim the kingdom of God and then uh, instruct them to tell no one that he's the Messiah? And the problem, I think, is that the disciples couldn't really get their heads around this central fact that was unfolding here was, was, was not just the coming of the kingdom, what was happening right before their very eyes, what was unfolding right in front of them was the coming of the king, the fulfillment of the kingdom. And this king was going to rule in a very different way. Because we have to remember, don't we, that, that uh, the disciples still pretty much assumed that the Messiah was going to be some kind of strong man, uh, political hero. That, that, that's, that's what everybody thought. Uh, That's why um, earlier in this very same chapter, Luke chapter 9, you see even Herod starting to feel a little bit paranoid about this mysterious figure, Jesus. But of course, of course, Jesus was not some rival king groping for earthly power. He he didn't care about pomp or or prestige or, or, or privilege. This was a king whose coronation would come with a crown of thorns. In fact, go back and and read verse 22. Jesus tried to explain this to the disciples. He he says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus tried to tell them. He didn't come to be a potentate or a, 
or a, or a teacher or, or show us what it means to be human or help us be more like Mr. Rogers uh, or to live our very best life. He could have done all of that without going to the cross and suffering and dying and rising up from the grave. Well, you see, Jesus, Jesus wasn't about to let anybody make him into a superhero or a life coach. His mission was to be the crucified savior of humanity. He had set his face to go towards Jerusalem. And James and John pretty much missed that point. They pretty much missed that point. Uh, of course, uh, Jesus knew that uh, there would come a day and a time when they would proclaim uh, this good news in all of its fullness, but that day was not yet. So he said, yeah, yeah, yep, you're right. I am the Messiah, but don't, don't tell anybody. Don't, don't tell anybody. I think, I think one of the best ways to understand it, at least for me, is, is um, let's say your, your 10-year-old uh, asks you, um, uh, where, do, where do babies come from? Where do babies come from? Uh, did somebody say amen or amen? Because that is incorrect. But uh, yeah, where do babies where do babies come from? And and you say uh, you say you tell them you give them the answer to that question. But then you say, honey, now honey, if your four year old little brother asks you about this, I don't want you to say anything. If they ask you, you just tell them to come ask mommy. What about dad? Okay, you can tell him. But, but there's just, there's just this sense when, when, when Jesus knew it would be better for them not to tell the story than to get the story wrong. And, and, and you see, that's exactly what happens with this little fracas in Samaria. They did get the story wrong. Not because there wouldn't someday be judgment and a triumphant king, but because that judgment wasn't theirs to deliver. And because this was a very, very different king. The first reason James and John missed the point was because James and John hadn't fully come to terms with who Jesus was. But the other issue, mistake number two, was that James and John hadn't fully come to terms with who they were. I mean, there was, there was an there was an arrogance here, wasn't there? Uh, you know, James and John were sort of acting like the whole mission somehow hinged on, on, on them, on, on their effort. You know, like somehow the pushback from this one little Samaritan village was going to thwart the entire mission of the God of the universe unless they stepped in to save the day. It, it, it reminds me, actually, of two uh, extras on a massive, uh, you know, massive crowded movie set who, who don't realize they're just playing a very small part in a very, very big story. Yes, James and John had a part to play, but there was a much bigger story here that they didn't fully understand, and what they didn't seem to grasp is that no matter how it looks, God is the author of that story. Plus, I mean, who were they? Who were they to call down judgment 
on the, on the Samaritans to assume that, you know, the Samaritans, just, they're, just, they're just too far gone. Just, just write them off and pretty much say, you know what, they're not on our side, Lord. There's no hope for them. Let's just, let's just smoke them. What James and John hadn't come to terms with was that, you know, their bigotry, their bigotry against the Samaritans, their eagerness to bomb the village was in its own way a rejection of Jesus and his kingdom. So if judgment and fire for every sinner in town was the order of the day, then they weren't really safe either. That's why Jesus rebuked them in the strongest and most serious terms. Even with all that they had seen and heard, they missed the point. They missed the point because they hadn't fully come to terms with who Jesus was and they hadn't fully come to terms with who they were. And folks, the reason, the reason you and I need to hear this lesson this morning about discipleship is because in these crazy days of angry, contentious public discourse about everything, from, from masking to politics to moral issues, I mean, even, even kids' sporting events, for crying out loud, we need to understand that one of the marks one of the marks of true discipleship, one of the truest proofs that we get the point of this king and his kingdom is when something gets in our way, somebody says something we don't like, instead of thunder and judgment, instead of thunder and judgment, we respond with the grace and the patience of Jesus. And frankly, most of us are not very good at this. Uh, I mean, let's be honest, our response to the culture when they don't welcome us with open arms, you know, like when non-Christians act like non-Christians, it's not unlike James and John. We say we're willing to carry our cross, but, but what the world often sees from us, those of us who call ourselves Christian, is that if you cross us, we're going to crucify you, and what we're mostly willing to carry is a grudge. I'll be the first to say I know, I know this can be true for me. I'll hear somebody issue a statement or post an opinion that I think is an insult to Jesus or the majesty of God or worse yet, something I disagree with. And I want to immediately make some kind of fire response. I want to go on a record. I want to post a tweet, fire off an email, call down judgment. I want to step in and protect God's reputation. I'm going to bet, I'm going to bet I'm not the only son of thunder in this room this morning. But here's the problem, folks, with us modern-day sons of thunder. For all of our loud noise and angry posts, our thunder tends to breed more lightning than rain. And while one can bring refreshment, the other just brings wildfires and destruction. Authentic discipleship is often played out in the ordinary, everyday little moments of life when we are on our way to do something else. And then, for some reason, the journey doesn't go the way we think it ought to go. Somebody said something, somebody does something, you know, maybe it's a spouse, a child, a coworker, a preacher, a politician, some, some Yahoo online, and we are ready to call down fire. 
But the point, men and women, is that this is a different kind of king. This is a different kind of king with a different kind of kingdom, and we will completely miss that point unless we're prepared to seriously consider two questions. Who do you say that he is? And who do you think you are? You know, every single one of us here this morning, every single one of us is a part of the story in this passage, Luke 9, 51 to 56. Some of us, some of us here this morning are, are like the Samaritans. Like we're, we're, maybe you're here this morning and, 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 and you don't really know Jesus. You don't seriously call yourself a disciple of Jesus. And like the Samaritans, for whatever reason, you're not ready yet to kind of welcome him uh, into your life. You're not ready to invite him into your, into your heart, into your, into your marriage, into your workplace, uh, into your entertainment, into your dating relationships, into your, into your social media. And, and, and if that's you, let me say, first of all, it is awesome that you are here. It is awesome that you are here. We see it in this passage. There is no boundary line for Jesus. He loves everyone. He welcomes everyone. He's willing to embrace everyone. Jesus literally died on the cross to break down those boundaries. But I also want to point out to you what I think is one of the most sobering parts of this whole passage. Uh, I don't know if you noticed it, but, um, but after this entire drama has played out and the Samaritans had turned Jesus away from their town, The scripture says ominously in verse 56, they went on. They went on to another village. They went on to another village. Now, maybe the Samaritans thought, we don't know. Maybe the Samaritans thought, oh, you know what? We're not going to let this guy just stroll into our lives because he claims to be the Savior. Or maybe they thought, oh, no, you know, it's not that we don't like him. It's just now. Now is not a good time for us to, to invite him. Or maybe someone thought, you know what, we'll, we'll catch him on the return trip. We'll, we'll, catch him, we'll catch him later. But it's striking, isn't it? That in this passage, Jesus went on to another village. And we know there was no return trip. There was no return trip. Jesus said, okay, in essence, okay, you don't want anything to do with me? Have it your way. Have it your way. This is one of about three or four instances in the Gospels where people turned Jesus away and he left. And he left. They wanted a life. They wanted a town without God. And that's just exactly what they got. And that, men and women, is a sobering thought for our life and times and country. We want a life without God. We want a public square without God. We can have that. We can have that. But we better think very, very carefully about what we're going to be left with. I think Isaiah's warning in chapter 55 says it well. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly, abundantly pardon. 
If you're in that first group this morning, if you're standing there among the Samaritans, I want to seriously urge you to consider that invitation. But I suspect that most of us here this morning, uh, we're in the second group. We're in the second group. We're, we're disciples. We're, we're walking with Jesus. Uh, but what we need to hear in this text is a challenge in those, in those everyday mundane encounters along the way of life to allow Jesus to live out his grace and love and patience in us and through us. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's what it means to, to, to deny yourself Take up your cross and follow him. And we can't do this on our own. We, we can't do All of us are, are sinners. Uh, like James and John, we're quick to speak and, and slow to understand. We are haunted by our resentments and our biases and our moods and temptations and prejudices. The great news is that this God who abundantly pardons died on the cross so that we could be forgiven for our sin, delivered from his judgment, and raised him with him to a new life and a whole new kingdom. In fact, I, I think, um, I honestly think that probably the most encouraging part of this passage is the part you don't even see on the page. Because what we see here, uh, what we see on the page looks just like a story of failure. But if that's all we see, men and women, we have completely missed the point. Because even though James and John failed Jesus, Jesus didn't fail James and John. I mean, even with their, you know, hot-headed, bozo, uh, you know, trigger-happy moves, Jesus doesn't just give up on them. He doesn't say, okay, all right, you know what, you guys are done uh, you know, I should never have recruited you to be a disciple. Uh, turn in your robe. You're not going to be in the Bible. You're finished. You're finished. You know what? That's not what he did. And you know why he didn't do that? Because he's not just a recruiter. He's a redeemer. Jesus changes us. He changes. He continued to pour into these dudes, encouraging them, loving them, believing in them. And what we discover when we see the whole story is that, uh, well, actually, James, we know that James was the very first of the apostles to die for his faith. We know that he was killed by the sword under the judgment of Herod Agrippa. You say, oh, okay, but what, what, about, what about John, the loudmouth hothead? What, what's his story? Well, I'm going to close my time with you this morning by reading a few verses from a letter that this very same John wrote to the persecuted church, the persecuted Christians in the early church. These words are from 1 John 3, beginning in verse 13. John wrote, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful 
for the abundant pardon that allows us the privilege of standing before you, spotless and righteous, not because of our good deeds, not because we're always prudent in our speech, not because we get everything right, not because our thoughts are always pure, not, not because everything we do is righteous, but because of the blood of Christ that cleanses us from sin. Lord, I pray that if there's a, somebody here standing among the Samaritans today that they would hear this, this sobering invitation to seek the Lord while he may be found. And for those of us, Lord, who are among the disciples, help us to guard our thoughts and our mouth and our mind and our hearts so that we might live out this grace and truth as a disciple of Jesus. We pray this in his matchless name. And everybody said, amen.